You are listening to This is Oklahoma, hosted by Mike Hearn, telling stories of Oklahomans and those that have made it their home. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling Oklahoma stories through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on Instagram at oklahomahof. Let's get into today's episode. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of This is Oklahoma. Mike Hoon here, your host, back with another episode down at the Oklahoma Hall of Fame today. Today's Friday. It probably isn't going to be Friday when you're listening to this, but it's a beautiful day. The sun is shining and it's not cold, so we haven't had our second or third fall spring yet, which we usually get in Oklahoma. Uh, but my guest today is an Oklahoma Hall of Famer who was inducted in 2006, and that is Mr. Bob Burke. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Mike. Thank you very much. Yeah. For some context, for people listening, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Okay. I am an attorney. Mm-hmm. I'm an author. I'm a historian. Yeah. And I used to be, before I got too old to do it, a gardener. A gardener, okay. <laughs> and I'm terrible at all of those. Oh, I think. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I loved working in the yard as long as I could. Yeah. But I was born 1948 in yeah. Broken Bow, a little town in McCurtain County in southeast Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, we were didn't have a lot of money, but we never got hungry because we always had a wonderful, wonderful garden. Yeah. Uh, I'm an only child. Uh, my father. Uh, drove a propane tank Mm -hmm. until he decided to get into politics, and he was elected county commissioner for the northern part of McCurtain County and served there for about 40 years. Uh, My mom was a stay-at-home mom until I was about the sixth or seventh grade, and she established what became a very successful insurance agency. Mm -hmm. So uh, I uh, grew up, nobody in my entire extended family on either side large families. Nobody had ever gone to college. And so, but they insisted that I go to school. (laughs) So uh, I went to Broken Bow High, Broken Bow. We didn't have, it's before kindergarten was invented, I think. And so I uh, started first grade in Broken Bow and uh, graduated from Broken Bow High School. Mm -hmm. It was one of those, we only had about 600 people in from seventh grade to 12th grade. And I honestly think that I knew every one of those 600 people uh, for various reasons. Uh, I uh, didn't go to class a lot, especially my senior year. But what I did is about age 15, uh, I was invited to work at the radio station in Idabel. KBEL was the only radio station in the county. And so I was hired originally just to do, at age 15, my mom, in fact, till I became 16, Mm -hmm. had to drive me from Broken Bow to Idabel to work. And I uh, did a disc jockey show from 7 till 10 when the station signed off called The Teenage Rendezvous. Okay. Now, the owner of the station uh, had heard somewhere that one of the Beatles had said that they were as popular as Jesus. Okay, big controversy at the time. And so he wouldn't allow, he wouldn't buy any Beatles records. So I bought them on my own. And so the transmitter room 
to the radio station was just behind the control room. Mm -hmm. And then the owner and his wife lived about 100 yards. And so I'd go on the air at 7, their lights are still on, but about 8.15 or 8.30 they went to bed. And so, now this is the only radio station in the county, so all the teenagers. I have friends in Oklahoma City now, a former judge, who they listened to the Teenage Rendezvous. Yeah. And so, so I played the Beatles, but I had to play my own record, and I played it after uh, the owners uh, went, went to bed. So I worked in the radio station. Yeah. I didn't go to a, a class a lot, especially my senior year, because even though I started out working just a few hours a week, mm-hmm. uh, my junior and senior year, the guy who opened up the station, it was a daytimer that was on the air mm-hmm. from 530 in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And so he opened up in the morning and he and another guy leaves for, uh, uh, or, or uh, he's there most of the day. Well, he got terribly ill when it became when it came to my junior year in high school. And so they thought he was going to come back. He never did. He just was ill for years until he died. So there wasn't anybody but me because the third guy got a job in Dallas. So then half of my junior year and all of my senior year, I got, that's why I get up early now. I got up about 4.30. By this time, I drove to the radio station Put, turned on the computer and went on the air at 5.30. And I did what was called rip and read in broadcasting. It's where we had an Associated Press machine that literally typed off the news, okay? Mm-hmm. And so I would rip it off, and they would prepare a 15-minute newscast of everything going on in the world. Well, we were in the Vietnam War at the time, and I shall never forget every time you came across in a story of one of those long Vietnamese commanders, General so-and-so, well, you just went, and General Marchand, you know, you, you just kind of stumbled through it. Yeah. And, and, but it's called Rip and Read. And so I learned uh, early uh, to look at a word and, you know, don't stumble on it. No reason to read over it. Wasn't time. Yeah. And then after that, I did about a 10 minute farm report. Okay. <laughs> Cause they had a farm report. I just simply had to read it. Um, and then I was on the air until, uh, 11 o'clock in the morning, did a mid- big local newscast with all the people who had died and stuff at 11 o'clock, true local radio. But I left at 11, went back and went to uh, two classes, class and a half really, and then um, went back on the air at one o'clock and was on the air until 10 o'clock when I turned off the computer. So, but I enjoyed it and I made a dollar and a quarter an hour. And Mike, I thought, you know, if I can ever make a hundred dollars a week, I can have anything in life. Really, really, I did. Well, you know. Yeah. But uh, but I enjoyed that broadcasting, and it gave me a great leg up in the world of broadcasting because I came to the journalism school at OU, and there were people wanting to be broadcasters. I was a veteran of three years, so I came up, and I had during I had taken a correspondence course to get what's called a first class license yeah. with the Federal Communications Commission. And you had to have one to sign on the transmitter log of a station like KOMA here in the city. KOMA was perhaps the strongest station in the nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was 50,000 watts, which was as high as you could go. It was on at 1520. And it had a directional antenna that literally was pointed toward Portland, Oregon. 
So, and and rock and roll, what was called 2020 radio, okay. of where you had a news at 20 till, news at 2020, you know. And we, we uh, uh, the owner of KOMA owned six other stations in Kansas, WHB in Kansas City, station in New Orleans, station in St. Louis, and was one of the pioneers of this new format. And you, and the kids throughout the western half of the country yeah. listened to KOMA. We had advertising to, you know, it might say, and I used to get 50 dollars for each of these uh, sock hops that I was going to attend. Never attended one, but so, but so it would say, you know, Saturday night in Longview, Kansas, Bob Burke will appear with Squatty and the Bodies, you know, <laughs> with those bands, because bands would would uh, advertise with us because yeah. because at night we had an incredible strong signal throughout 29 states. Um, for example, in the states of Wyoming and Montana, in two-thirds of those states, yeah. KOMA was the only station you could hear at night. Uh, we, in fact, we were number one in Denver. We were number one in Albuquerque and places like Cheyenne, Wyoming. Uh, we were number three in San Francisco at night because we had this new style of music. Now, we, we lost a lot of disc jockeys all the time who weren't going to school like me uh, uh, because, I, then, because then I started, uh, at, well, I did the all-night show for a while. Uh, uh, under the, we had house names in those days. Uh, you might have two or three people who were Gary Mack. Or, and the, our nighttime deal was Robert W. Morgan. So for several months, I was Robert W. Morgan. Then I started doing the uh, 7 to Midnight, and I was, it was the Babbling Bob Burke Show, <laughs> which aptly described me, okay? Yeah. But um, uh, at not, that strong signal at night, uh, it was, especially from 10 to midnight, that was 11, or that was um, 9, well, the two hours difference in the mountain time zone, but it was still just 8 to 10 o'clock on the West Coast. Yeah. So, with that signal booming in, a directional signal that was booming in, uh, we were, we would trade places almost every month with WABC in New York. Uh, with who had the most listeners in America. So it was really cool, yeah. really cool. Uh, but So I enjoyed that because I was just a kid. Oh, man, I, I was just absolutely a kid. And it worked well for me because I, I think the statute of limitations has probably run on this. But uh, I, I would uh, dedicate songs to my professors at OU. I didn't have a lot of time to go to class. Should have been an honorary degree, okay? But... Um, uh, so, but I would dedicate songs to them, and on early Sunday mornings we had a program that at one time had been the OSU Hour. I changed it to the OU Hour. It's where I interviewed. So I had to interview one of my professors to talk about the history of music because I had to take that deal, you know. And I, I really didn't know a lot that, about that class that summer, 
but I always had lots of free passes that I would pass out and the and the the professors would love to pass those out in their classes because that's when the first McDonald's in South Oklahoma in Oklahoma City was built and we had just stacks you know and that's before we had numbers like you know five two one whatever seven nine four was the but it was it was Swift the Swift Exchange so say the third caller at Swift four 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 yeah. get a McDonald's hamburger, fries, and a milkshake. Well, I lived off of that. I was single, and I lived off that for a while. But but it was very important. And movie passes, because you had the Winchester Drive-In Theater still on the south side. I was there at the opening of it, okay, in about 1969 or 70. Yeah. And we had a lot of passes to it. So so that really helped in my classes, yeah, okay? Yeah. And, uh, oh, especially one, because I interviewed uh, the lady who was teaching uh, a an English uh, literature class. Mm. Well, I really didn't have the time to read like all 10 novels that we were doing. And so, but I interviewed her. And oh, it was just a really, I think I interviewed her on Dickens. Yeah. And so it was really great. So it came, comes time for the final. And, and, you know, I just, you know, I didn't know any of these characters. So I just said things like, well, he was so important as the character because he expressed humility and whatever. And I did good in that class, really did. So yeah. I, 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 as a disc jockey, um, I also, uh, back in high school, had been directed to a career in broadcasting because uh, the week before I went out for football my sophomore year, and the week before um, my before the first game, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Gregory and Glennie Haley creamed my leg. They yeah. crushed my. I was about a third string guard. Okay, wasn't very good. And so my coach was a guy named John Axton. Now, John's son was Hoyt Axton, mm-hmm. the great singer and entertainer from Oklahoma. And his wife, who was my English teacher, was Mae Boren Axton, who wrote Elvis's first song, Heartbreak Hotel. And John had originally been from Idabel. Yeah. So, so Coach Axton... Uh, was kind of, he was kind of, uh, he's a great coach, very successful. But he was, um, hmm, how do you say this? Uh, he was very rough around the edges. So I got in the locker room and I'm limping in there. And he said, Bobby, you're not very good anyway. And you're going to really mess that knee up. I'd just quit if I were you. So I did. Okay. Well, so I'm working at the radio station anyway. And so... Uh, come Friday night, yeah. uh, and, and by the way, my mother, for religious reasons, was very strict, and I had never been, uh, even though I was president of the student council, I was assembly president, had an office above the auditorium that was larger than the superintendent's office that had been built for me by the, I really ran the school, and the superintendent said that. Yeah. I ran the school the last senior year and junior year. So, so, um, but my mother had not allowed me to go to football games, mm-hmm. okay? So, on the Thursday before the first football game of the season, uh, Stan Kaysen, who had always been, had called, the, had broadcast the football games, said, well, no, he just quit, went to Dallas, okay? And so, Mr. Stanley, who on the station, says, Bobby, you're the only one left. I said, well, you know, 
I've never done this. He said, well, I don't know anything about sports. So this is a unique thing of how that perhaps I always had the ability to think on my feet and to just wing it. The first time I was ever in that football stadium, I broadcasted on radio (laughs) (laughs) and did that for the last three years of high school. So so I'm a seasoned sportscaster by the time I come up. And Harold Keith, uh, in addition to working at KOMA, I was always, hey, there's 24 hours in the day. Mm -hmm. I never was happy with just one job. I wanted to be involved. So Harold Keith was a legendary sports information director at OU. Yeah. And he hired me for $20 a game to be the public address announcer at the, the old field house, mm-hmm. which is now the McCaslin field house on the OU campus. And um, so, uh, hey, I had never seen, now basketball I knew. Because yeah. I had uh, been the PA announcer at the basket at our high school basketball games, okay? Yeah. And I had announced anything we ever had. Graduation, even my own graduation, I was the announcer of it, okay? So, so I didn't know, I'd never seen a wrestling match. We didn't have wrestling. Yeah. And they, OU was big. They were winning national championships. Um, I had gymnastics. I didn't even know what that was. I was a kid from Broken Bow. So here's what I did. I talked to the coaches of both of those, the wrestling coach, and, the, and, I, and they linked me with a, one, one, a player on their team, either a wrestler or a gymnastics star who was injured. And I said, okay, I need for you yeah. to... I, you got to teach me all about this sport. So I learned enough of where I could do the public address. You know, yeah. now this is I don't even remember the terminology. So so worked out. I did that for oh probably nine months or so, and then uh, a great guy named Bob Berry that later I noticed right here somewhere is I wrote his bio, uh, Michael Dean and I wrote his biography. Yeah. He was like a second father to me because he. Um, Uh, had just uh, five years before and had become the play-by-play announcer Mm -hmm. for OU for football and for uh, basketball. He ultimately would be the play-by-play announcer either for OU or OSU Mm -hmm. for 50 years, broadcast more college uh, sports activities than anyone in history. So anyway, uh, Bob Mm -hmm. uh, knows me from... um, uh, being the PA announcer. And so he decided he ne- needed a color commentator on the OU Sports Network, mm-hmm. the, the basketball network. He was going to pay me $25 a game. So, man, I got, what, what is that? That's 25% increase, you know. Now I was making okay money at KOMA. Yeah. Well, it was okay money for me to have uh, a little, I had a room in the top of this old lady's house on Lahoma, you know, and, uh, $20 a month or something, you know, yeah. it was really great. <laughs> Housing was cheap and the, I'm really 112 years old. It really is why I tell stories like that. I, I never, I forgot to tell you that, that when I was born, yeah. I wasn't born in a hospital. We didn't have one in Broken Bow. I was born in the front room of our little two room house. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, Dr. Cheryl um, uh, delivered me. In fact, mother had kind of gone into labor like at midnight. So Doc Cheryl, dad puts a cot in front of her bed. He sleeps the rest of the night there. And I'm born about 10 o'clock in the morning. 
Okay. And uh, so, hey, I was, you know, I don't meet a lot of people who were born in a house. (laughs) And here's what's cool. This really makes me sound old is that my my gra- he had delivered my grand uh, my mother he had delivered my mother 25 years before in this little town of Hochatown where that is now covered up by Broken Bow Lake where both my uh, parents were born and where all my grandparents lived and my grandfather each time for her birth 25 years before and mine in 1948 he paid Dr. Cheryl with a calf they're really true. I don't even know anybody, I, you know, yeah. but that's just, we were poor down there. Yeah. We often say that I was so poor and we lived so far out in the country that you had to go back toward town to hunt. <laughs> okay. It's not exactly true, but it really it's, goes well. I mean, Broken Bow is way out there. Mm-hmm. It's a lot different now. Oh, oh, oh. In fact, the Hall of Fame has recently published a book and I'm mm-hmm. so proud of it. Got a picture of my parents in it. Yeah. Uh, and it's a history of Hochitown. Beaver's Bend State Park and uh, Broken Bow Lake. And I've lived that history. In fact, the photo on the front was chosen, well, I helped choose it, because that's the stretch of the mountain fork where I learned to swim. Okay, The lieutenant governor wrote the foreword to that, but that is such a, there are 3,000 cabins. In fact, so neat, Verbo, about six months ago, uh, listed their top 10 destinations for Americans looking for some place to stay. Number one was St. Thomas in the Virgin Islands. Number two was Broken Bow, Oklahoma. Number three was Disney World. And number four was Yellowstone National Park. Isn't that crazy? My dad is rolling over in his grave (laughs) because that was just worthless, rocky land up there. It's a gold mine now. No, no, no. Oh, 35 years ago, we could have bought that whole north end of the county for $200 an acre. Now there are $2 million cabins there. But it's just... Now, they have traffic problems that hopefully the Department of Transportation will be taking care of, but that blows anybody's mind because uh, I think the book was aptly called Explosion of Prosperity. Yeah. So it's amazing. Amazing. It, yeah. It's, I've been down there, and yeah. it's, you're right. You're right. It, the infrastructure needs to be oh, yeah. revamped. Yeah, right? and I, the, the, the highway department um, uh, recently allocated like $54 million to yeah. like four-lane the highway from Hochitown or from Hoch- the new Hochitown to um, to yeah. um, Broken Bow. And, and that town means so much to me because out on the highway there, there's a little white church. Mm-hmm. And that's the old church that was in Hochitown okay. where my parents were married in 1946. Yeah. And, uh, and then my mother was hired. She was an insurance agent by the late 60s uh, when they um, uh, moved. My grandparents, Kincaid, were the last ones, good Scottish name, you know, had yeah. moved. Uh, they were the last ones to leave Hutchitown before the water started uh, forming. Yeah. And the, um, but they hired my mother to uh, supervise the moving of the cemetery. And there's a huge cemetery there. I have kinfolks there for 150 years, uh-huh. you know. So, so anyway, I just, I, you know, I thought, and I won't ever write my autobiography, yeah. but I thought if I did, I would begin with this sentence. There are two things over which humans have no control. Now, because, you know, we, we have some control by choices or whatever for most everything we do. I screw up a lot, but it's my choice usually. But... I wanted to say there are two things over which humans have no control. 
where you are born and who your parents are. You have no choice in that. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, I would change neither because I enjoyed growing up in a small town. Um, if I got a whipping at school, because, hey, I started getting paddlings in the fifth grade. I know this would surprise you, but it, but it was for talking too much. Okay. <laughs> in the fifth grade, Mrs. Barnett, yeah. uh, Carrie Burnett, uh, would wear me out with a paddle. Okay. And uh, so, but it's small town. Yeah. By the time I got home, mom already knew it because Miss Burnett called her. And when in the sixth grade, I got a few paddlings. I guess the last paddling I got was in a physics class. Howard Miner was an assistant football coach, big old boy, you know, boy, big old boy. And so I, I was talking to my, after May Axton had gone back to Nashville, uh, she, uh, he, he took over English. Mm -hmm. And so I was talking too much, and so he got me out in the hallway. And I'll never forget those three licks with that big paddle. Because it knocked, I'm telling you, he knocked me down the hallway all the way to the office. It, it was, yeah, yeah. It's the last one I got. It's brutal. Kids wouldn't survive that today. No, they wouldn't. But, you know, it certainly didn't harm me. Yeah. No. Because Mrs. Legan, Mrs. Legan, now she was a big woman. Mm -hmm. And she could lay it on you real good. But uh, she uh, left her classroom one time to go do something. And she left me in charge. Well, me and Rex Tomlinson, unfortunately my good friend who's he's gone now, uh, but Rex and I fixed up some chairs and the paddle that she kept in a certain drawer, we knew where it was because she'd reach for it. We hid it up in the, it had one of those drop ceilings, you know, so we hid it up in the ceiling. And only after we graduated did we write an anonymous letter to tell Miss Lee and where we had written her. Oh, but, but I enjoyed school, yeah. and I got such a quality education. Yeah. Math has always been my greatest. Never had any math in college, but I set some kind of state record on the ACT when I took the math part in high school. Yeah. And it's because Mrs. Harris, who was an incredibly smart woman, and in that little town of Broken Bow, she offered there was a Latin class. I mean, in math, we didn't just have general math. We had algebra, solid algebra, plain algebra. We, we'd had, we had calculus in that little town because she was qualified to, to, to teach. Now, on the first day of the year, first day of the class, me and Rex, a couple other guys, we were back. We were back there, and of course, you know, about the second day, I was talking too much, yeah. and she made me sit for the rest of the semester, almost in every class, right beside her desk. Well, Mrs. Harris always explained things on the blackboard. They weren't green boards in those days. They yeah. were black. But on the blackboard, she explained things, but she mumbled. And so most of the class could not hear her. But I'm right up. She's right there because I'm up. My desk is sitting right beside her desk. Yeah. So I learned so much. And that's how I became yeah. really good in math. Yeah. And but it, but but just so many classes. I think I got an incredible quality education in that public school in a tiny town mm -hmm. of where teachers were making nothing because we had our, our I mean, we had a very small tax base yeah. to base anything on. And but they were dedicated 
Believe me, they were called to teaching. None of them were there for a job. It was a calling. And most of them had been there forever. But I shall ever love uh, the the teachers that I had uh, for giving me a wonderful... I, when I came to OU and there in the broadcasting course, I had a leg up because I was, I was a veteran broadcaster already. And... Um, I uh, worked at Channel 5 and did the 6 o'clock news. And so uh, it was not a problem when, when assignments were given out by the, uh, the college professors. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would often would go field trips. Of, they'd come and watch me work. Yeah. Okay, And KOMA was so cool because there was a guy who became a huge star later on, Conway Twitty. Conway lived in South Oklahoma City. He built homes, and he had a, a burger stand called uh, Twitty Burgers. Okay, Now, that was in between two careers of his. He had had a big uh, rock and roll hit in the 1950s called It's Only Make Believe. And this is before then he gets back into country music, and he and who? Loretta Lynn, and they would do duets. I mean, Conway became a huge, huge country star. But Conway, you know, Conway's gone. He's dead, so I can't defame him. Good guy, but he just, he drank too much, you know? And so he would, in those days, KOMA, I was there with myself all night in this huge building, but I left the front door open. So kids would come through, and they, they had a big glass for the control room. Well, Conway would come out there and sit with me for two hours. I'd have to sometimes say, shh, you know. But, no. So yeah. I had such an opportunity to meet. Uh, Linda Ronstadt wrote me a letter one time. She lived on a, a, a ranch way out in in. Arizona or New Mexico, can't remember. But she had learned to sing by singing along with with songs at night on KOMA. It's the only station she could get. Uh, So many people, I mean, there, I I remember, and in those days, uh, bands would come by to give you a tape of uh, of a new song before it was out. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I remember these guys showing up one time in Civil War uniforms. It was Gary Puckett and the Union Gap. Big time top forty in in the in the sixties and early seventies. Well, they came by with, and then what we would do. The reason that they wanted to give me a tape at night mm-hmm. was because uh, the the record wouldn't be out for two or three weeks, but I was able to play it for the western half of the country, yeah. and lots of times. I mean. Uh, 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 I, I could, there are five or six or seven songs that we had uh, a month yeah. before it was actually released as a record. But we had it just as a, and you know, it was an antiquated time of where you didn't have um, any uh, electronics mm-hmm. because you still had a turntable yeah. that you cued the record up, yeah. and then you held it with your finger, and when you were ready to go, you know, here's the fifth of five in a row on the Babbling Bob Burke Show, and you let it go. Yeah. <laughs> That's my broadcast voice. Okay. <laughs> no. Oh, it's, I mean, I, so, I mean the, look, doing some research for this interview, and looking, there's a lot of stuff that you've done, and... And we'll get into why that is. But what did little Bob want to do when he grew up? Did he want to be a broadcaster when he grew up? Well, yes. Yeah. I was always going to replace Walter Cronkite, yeah. who did the CBS Evening News okay. uh, during the Watergate, during Watergate, uh, during the assassination of President Kennedy. And 
uh, no doubt was the most trusted voice in America. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to do that, but then uh, life gets in the way of that. I decide, okay, I, 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 in fact, I had made as much money because uh, I went with KTOK Radio and the Oklahoma News Network, which which was a, well, the predecessor was the Indian Nations Network. Mm-hmm. We I was 19, but we drew straws to see who would do the first uh, radio network newscast in Oklahoma, and I got to draw it. Yeah. And so we did that. That turned into the Oklahoma News Network, which still exists. Uh, is a, you know, 40, 50, 60 stations around the state. Mm -hmm. So I went all, you know, I even, when I was in the Air National Guard to fulfill my commitment rather than be drafted, I went six weeks for basic training. But then the rest of the time, I would come uh, to the station at KTOK, which was the most listened to radio station, adult station in town. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my uniform would do the five o'clock big, a 30-minute newscast, and then with 30 seconds off, uh, then do 15 minutes of news to about 50 stations around the state. So I've always, uh, I'm still very conscious of time Mm -hmm. to the second, because when I broadcast uh, games for ABC, you couldn't be 30 seconds late or you had 400 stations out there, you know, uh, with dead air. So I still have this recurring dream about every three or four years. I don't remember a lot of my dreams, if I dream. But I have the recurring dream that I literally got caught in the bathroom and I'm a minute late. Mm -hmm. Now, of getting back, for example, at the Oklahoma News Network, uh, I was the only person in the newsroom at night because I was going to college in the daytime, supposedly, okay? And uh, so I have been 30 seconds late. So the key to that is that you don't get on there and say, I'm sorry, I'm late. What you do is you get on there and you start in the middle of a story. (laughs) So each of these 50 stations out there, they're all thinking, oh, we must have done something wrong. (laughs) I don't know who taught me that. Yeah. So you also you but get, I've had such a blessed yeah, life. You get I mean, broadcasting I'm in my fourth goes. career. Yeah. Because I was a broadcaster. Yeah. I sold newspapers before that. Worked at a department store too. You know. Yeah. Uh, that was my job at age 12. I, I worked in the local department store, Norris Department Store. Mm-hmm. But but then um, I, uh, when David Bourne was elected governor, I never intended to leave Broken Bar. I was going back back. And my dad was county commissioner. Uh, we had a huge insurance agency that I was running with my mom. Uh, there was a big discount store that my dad had that, so things yeah. to do. But then David Bourne decides, in, and he had been my counselor in my dorm at OU, okay? So I had known him since I was a freshman in college. He's seven years older. Yeah. And so then David decides to run for governor. I thought, well, okay. So I threw in 200 bucks with uh, 10 other guys, and we hired uh, this some polling outfit that said he only had 4% name recognition in the state. Well, it was an incredible campaign, the broom, famous broom campaign. He becomes governor. And so all of my friends that I work with in the campaign, they decide to go to law school at night at Oklahoma City University. Yeah. So I thought, okay. So I come up, and I wasn't necessarily qualified for this, but I was Secretary of Commerce at 27. I, um, you know, and 
during times when the economic stimulus package was of 1977 was passed in the Carter administration, all at once became like the third or fourth largest state agency. We had hundreds of millions of dollars. So I was very popular around the state. I mean, I once said that I had, you know, that I, that we had, and I always gave the governor credit, although one time on the campaign trail in 78, we were in Colgate. Cole County was the poorest county in the state. And the, so poor counties got more money. So we built a new city hall, a new uh, Department of Human Services building, and a new courthouse in the town. And so we're there at a big high school cafeteria. And so I and a trooper are the only ones accompanying him to do a speech on the campaign trail. He gets out in the car and he says, I, I, I don't understand this, but they gave you a larger hand than they gave me. So hey, I, it's all this stuff because I've been down there at the, uh, the ribbon cuttings for all the things. I always did it in your name, I promise you. <laughs> but, but so all at once I had been a broadcaster yeah. and then I'd been a politician and then I'm going to law school during that time at night, okay? Yeah. And so, and about, and I was in a hurry, so I finished law school in like two and a half years and became a lawyer. And uh, uh, the, in fact, I notice here is a biography of a guy named Mary Nopala, perhaps our most famous Supreme Court justice. Well, at the, that time I was in law school, Marion was a judge on the Oklahoma Workers' Compensation Court. Mm -hmm. And so he, he was the teacher in the workers' comp class. I just took it. I didn't know anything about it. And so loved that, that he, and as Secretary of Commerce, yeah. uh, I was involved because, and Marion helped so much, we were redoing the law mm -hmm. in 1978. And so I take this course with Marion, and then uh, he gets me so interested in workers' comp and by this time, we had written and passed this revolutionary new law that covered every worker in the state. Before that, you had to be in a hazardous occupation. Uh, you know, uh, your job would not be covered if you got hurt on the job. Okay. Now, um, so uh, I thought, hey, I've just written this law. I think I'll practice it. So that's all I've ever done. For 42 years, I have represented injured workers. Yeah. My wife often asks me the question, well, I'm 73, why are you still working? You don't have to. And, I, and I'm very serious about this. Um, we had seven or eight years ago a horrible legislative passage of a new law. I had written the laws for 35 years, and then we had some companies uh, Insist, well, they introduced a bill three days before the end of a session. It gave Oklahoma the lowest benefits in the country. No question. Mm -hmm. Now, the legislature since that has recognized the error of their ways and uh, has added some of the benefits back. We still are, well, we're up to 46th now, okay? But we were last in the country. And until I'm not going to leave the injured workers of the state hanging, um, I don't handle a lot of cases myself anymore. We have other uh, lawyers in the firm, mm -hmm. but, or in the building, uh, but I, and I do a lot of mediations because I stay in contact with my friends in workers' comp mm -hmm. and the adjusters who I've known forever, and I enjoy those, and yeah. I get to be an arbiter, and I'll settle 95% of them. So, uh, and, and, so, the fourth career, I've really had a fourth career as an author. Yeah. Uh, 39 years ago, uh, when David Bourne was elected to the U.S. Senate, 
I kind of took over the care of his mother and daddy, who lived up in northwest Oklahoma City. Uh, Lyle Bourne, uh, that was the subject of my first biography 150 books ago, was um, the youngest man ever elected to the U.S. Congress. And I would, on Friday afternoon, play dominoes with him. And he would tell me these incredible stories about him and Christine getting married. He had never been to Washington when he was elected to Congress. So they drive to Washington. He shows up at the White House and asks to see the president. Franklin Roosevelt says, come on in. Different day. Different, Different day. day. Yeah. He had met Roosevelt because he had, after he had won the Democratic nomination and had no a Republican opponent in 1936, um, he uh, campaigned some for Roosevelt on the back of a train. Remember, yeah. We have a wonderful picture of that, the Hall of Fame here. But uh, so, so um, he's telling me these stories because he and Christine, Lyle and Christine, uh, got this, they got a rooming house. And across the hall uh, was the senator from Missouri, uh, Harry, and Be Harry Truman and his wife, Bess. And then down the hallway was Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson. He wasn't even in Congress yet. He was the aide to Congressman Kleberg of Texas. And then other people, Clinton Anderson, who later, and they formed a Monday night poker club, by the way. Yeah. And it's, you know, I always wonder, how do people get on the cabinet of the United States? Well, in 19, when Roosevelt dies and Harry Truman becomes president, then Truman says, okay, the Monday Night Poker Club gets one slot on the cabinet. That's fair enough. That's his buddies. So they got one slot. Well, they get together and they thought, well, Clinton Anderson of New Mexico, the senator from New Mexico, is the oldest. So he should get that. So he became the secretary of agriculture on the cabinet. <laughs> That's how that was chosen. Uh, but, but... I got so, I, I loved, uh, in fact, I, I uh, said this ought to be a book, and I teamed up with a law school professor of mine, Von Creel, who I've written a number of books with, um, and, and Von and I just wrote that, and I thought, wow, th now this is cool. So it became, it became a passion. Yeah. Uh, at the Oklahoma Heritage Association in those days, that's now the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, there was a guy named Kenny Franks. Unfortunately, we lost him, but uh, Jenny and Paul Emmert and I went to see his widow in the last three or four months. But Kenny had written a lot of books, yeah. and so he kind of taught me, you know, how you should do that, you know. And, and so here comes other opportunities that came along. And, oh, it just became, uh, I don't play golf. Because, shoot, it takes all day to play 18 holes of golf. That's why I like well, it. <laughs> yeah. But, hey, I didn't write a, yeah, half, you got, half yeah. a chapter or a chapter of a book yeah. in, in that time period if you don't have to footnote it. Okay. Yeah. But um, I enjoy that so much because I love Oklahoma very much. I loved my upbringing. I, and through this, I have met so many, many wonderful great leaders, but also the common people of Oklahoma. Mm -hmm. I have met so many people. When I do interviews for a book, I might interview former governors and United States senators, but I also interview school teachers who, who were teaching that person who became, you know, great, a great leader. And, uh, and I've always tried to, every five books, write a book about somebody uh, that nobody knows about. Yeah. I used to hang out at the Oklahoma Historical Society with some of the historians and I'd say, okay, uh, you know, I need some book topics. And frankly, that's how uh, 
wonderful books of, of a guy named Roscoe Dungy. I've never heard of him, but he was really the pioneer civil rights leader in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many other people that, that they'd say, well, you know, what about Alice? I mean, I mean what about Alice Robertson, our first congresswoman? Mm-hmm. And the, the uh, um, uh, who was an old maid, I don't think we use that anymore. She was never married. Mm-hmm. But in Muskogee, ran a, a cafeteria, uh, was only the second woman ever elected to the U.S. Congress in 1920, just decides to run for Congress, you know. Wow. Then she introduces a bill to outlaw uh, formula for babies. Needed to be real milk. <laughs> that didn't go down too well. Oh, no, no it didn't yeah. pass. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> I think the lobbyists for less Nestle or something. But right now we are, yeah. uh, I mean, so as of today, we're at 151. 150. 150 published. Well, maybe, done. no, published, yeah. yeah. Maybe 149. I, 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 yeah. I, I have tried to list them all. In fact, recently, I tried, I had never had a collection of all of the books. Yeah. Okay? And so, at various places, at home, uh, uh, at the office, and then various places in my office where I keep extra books, yeah. um, I, I found all but four of them. Okay. But I, I'm... I don't. It's either one forty nine or one fifty. Yeah. And I, uh, I years ago I started comparing to other people who had written nonfiction books. Well, Pearl Buck had written eighty. Okay. Uh, and in all books, I mean, Lou Lamore wrote a hundred and four, mm-hmm. uh, and he wrote some of those early uh, at his uncle's because he lived with his uncle uh, out at Choctaw. Yeah. His uncle was a veterinarian out there. Uh, and, and a Lyle Bourne story, but but Lyle worked at a in high school worked at a, a block factory, the Let's Block Factory downtown, mm-hmm. and so Louis would come in on the train and catch a ride because uh, uh, Lyle had graduated from high school with with guys out there, uh, and uh, he'd go take him take him back, and he remembers the time when Louis was so excited because yeah. he had sold a short story for fifty bucks. You know, so um, and Louis Lamore in an interview that I've heard talks about his early years. His first book was a book of poetry he published during the Great Depression yeah. in Oklahoma. So, how old? So in the last thirty years, right? You've you've written yeah, one hundred and fifty yeah, books. Yeah, yeah. Well, since I think nineteen eighty nine uh, was when the Law Born book. So okay. so what is that? Twenty two. Yeah. What's 33? It's only yeah. 33 years. Yeah. yeah. I was born in 1990, so. Oh, well, okay. Sorry. Well, good. I started <laughs> writing the year before. And hey, I was already 39 years old. Yeah. I had never anticipated writing a book, even though I had a journalism degree. Yeah. And had been editor of the high school newspaper. In fact, my job in the Air Force, well, I was editor of the base newspaper. Yeah. You know, and and uh, had used my journalism degree like that, but never anticipated. I didn't anticipate being a lawyer. Right. Until all my friends were going to law school at night, you know. So we did. We we did. We'd ride together, and yeah. you know, um, uh, unless I was late going around the state uh, uh, awarding some contract for a new sewer plant. Right. And then it was so cool because I would fly back into Wiley Post Airport, and then the highway patrol just for fun would escort me to law school with their sirens on. <laughs> so I've had more than one professor say, okay, that Burke's coming. <laughs> you know, and I didn't mean that in disrespect at all because I 
you know, because I, I tried to learn a lot, you know, yeah. somehow passed the bar exam. And but I but I have truly been passionate, yeah. not only in Oklahoma, because I've led the fight across the country through a national organization. I'm tired right now from writing a brief in the United States Supreme Court in a big battle over states rights of where yeah. the federal government was trying to take over the workers comp uh, system in the state of Washington yeah. where somebody got hurt on a federal reservation. We want the states to do that. And mm -hmm. so I, I've, I've been involved across the country yeah. uh, in, in lawsuits in, in those deals. And I never charge for those. I just, hey, I just want to do what's right. Yeah. Uh, I fought this terrible concept that a lot of big companies were trying to thrust upon us about eight or nine years ago called opt-out. Mm -hmm. Anyway, terrible, worst thing I'd seen for the injured worker in 40 years. And so I not only fought that in Oklahoma, I fought it, I'd go to, I testified in before legislatures in five other states and beat it because it was just a horrible thing. It was just a, so we shut that down across the nation because, but, but, and then a New York Times reporter asked me, okay, who's paying you to do this? Insurance company? No. Right. You know, a major corporation named after, started by a guy from Oklahoma that I won't mention, um, spent about five or six million dollars in forming an organization with a number of other companies right. uh, to promote that across the South in conservative legislatures mm -hmm. at, from South Carolina to Oklahoma. Yeah. And um, it was unconstitutional. And so after we won that battle in Oklahoma, but anyway, I spent, I think, $4,200, yeah. but out of my pocket because they, and the reporter rarely, really never believed me. No, because I, if I f flew to testify before the, the uh, legislature in South Carolina, I wouldn't let the people who asked me to come pay my way. Right. I wouldn't let them pay for my hotel. I didn't want anybody to taint my, my truthfulness and my passion, yeah. my passion for fighting uh, for the injured worker. And so that's why I'm still at that. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm known as a moderate, so I, I, I love to be a mediator because I will come down in moderation. I'll tell both sides yeah. based upon trying. I've, I've represented 17,000 injured workers in 42 years. So I say, look, and I know this judge, here's what he's going to give you. And why don't I get you a couple of thousand more than that? You settle and go on down the road. And that usually works very well. I'm giving away all my secrets. Okay? <laughs> but so yeah. I'm, I'm in my third and fourth career. I don't practice a lot of law. Yeah. except as a mediator. Uh, but uh, I, I just wake up in the morning thinking about book projects. Hey, I will, you know, I will email Jenny Campbell at 4.30 in the morning. Of course, she's up too editing a, a you know, a manuscript. Yeah. But we exchange emails at all hours of the day and night just because I'll think of something. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to tell you yesterday I talked to so-and-so, whatever. And so I have, if you could see my office, there's a box for every book. There's a, one of those banker's boxes mm -hmm. that is already set up where interviews are going in. Man, there's four or five of those on my floor. Yeah. And so I got to get with it because there are a lot of stories to tell. And I, I told uh, my son the other day that I think I'll stop at 200. Yeah. He said, no, you won't. 
No, I, I was going to tell he you. Knows though, you yeah, he knows you. He knows you really books. well. Now, I've not written the most books in the world. They say I've written the most nonfiction books. Yeah. But um, uh, uh, Nora Roberts mm-hmm. writes romance novels. She's now at like a. She's now at like a hundred and eighty. Yeah. And she's about my age, so I may never catch her. I, I one time. I met her at a book signing somewhere, or I can't remember, some kind of a book event, festival. Yeah. And um, she said, oh, mine are so easy to write because, cause, hey, you know, you love's the same. You know, you change the place it happens and the names of the character. I mean, you know. Yeah. But, but I, and I enjoy doing, I don't want to ever do a fiction book because truth really is a stranger than fiction. Mm-hmm. And there's so many great stories of Oklahomans to tell. Uh, we have, oh, I'm, I'm working on a book of about 400 Oklahomans who have changed their worlds, who have, yeah. who have made a difference uh, from inventions to sports heroes to public servants mm-hmm. to astronauts. I mean, it's amazing. And again, my goal there is for my daughter, uh, Natalie, and I are working on that. And and uh, we, because she's done a lot of research of the later people. Okay. I'm an expert on the old people, you know. Yeah. But, but it is just amazing. And it's not just our older people who have excelled in that. Our current generation of kids are getting out of college and, and five years later uh, producing uh, episodes of the FBI, which is my favorite Tuesday night show on on uh, and and we have so many younger people who yeah. have gone uh, just in you know from all of the universities in the state, not just the the flagship universities, but our regional universities are putting out lots of people who are making a name for themselves. A kid, a kid, a kid from uh, from Stratford, yeah. uh, who. Uh, worked as a cashier at the Walmart store in Ada when he was going to East Central mm-hmm. is the present is the present CEO of Sam's Club. He starts out as a cashier, and Sam Walton comes through and tell and says, "You know, you're pretty bright, and you know, it's the early age of the computers. And why don't you come up to Bentonville because we might have a place for you up there." Yeah. He moves, get out of college, and moves to Bentonville. He's the CEO of Sam's Club. We've had a former CEO of Walmart from Oklahoma. And, of course, Walmart uh, was founded by Sam Walton from Kingfisher, Oklahoma, who married, uh, who married Helen Robson from Claremore, whose brother, Frank, uh, who has been very active in the Oklahoma Hall of Fame and the Oklahoma Foundation for Excellence. But he, uh, her brother's still living. Uh, very, very successful banker in real estate. He did real well, he said, because his brother-in-law kept hassling him when to buy stock in Walmart. You know, yeah. after the and so the Claremore Walmart store is store number three. <laughs> yeah, God, it's you're very inspiring to a lot of people because you just don't stop. But there's, uh, there's oh no, I know it. I mean, I just I, I'm so proud of Oklahoma. Yeah, and I always and I've never charged for writing those books. Uh, I, I don't want to make any. I'm not going to get up at, at even any more getting older. I'm not yeah, getting yeah. up at 430 or 5. Now I might sleep until 530, okay? But uh, I'm not getting up that early to go work, but yeah. I'll get up that early to go try to look through some interviews and write a chapter. Um, 
but there, I just, I'll never run out of stories. Yeah. I've had breakfast with somebody this week who has an excellent idea for a book that ultimately I will try to sell Jenny, you know, <laughs> that we ought to do that. You know? Right. And if we could ever come with enough paper in this world uh, for, for the yeah. printing houses now, yeah. uh, this ought to be a, a year of three or four or five books, you know, yeah. coming out that have been finished during the pandemic. I had a lot of time during the pandemic to write. Yeah, you said you don't get, you don't charge for the charge people. So what no. happens when the books go on sale? Where, where does that money go? Well, well? <clears throat> they, it is a great fundraiser for the Oklahoma Hall of Fame. Yeah, <clears throat> to fund all the programs that the Hall of Fame does, mm -hmm. and many times, um, oh, for example, um, uh, I, I Burns Hargis, the recently retired president of OSU, has asked me to write his biography. And yeah. uh, once that's done, uh, a half of the well, half of the books will go to uh, to OSU, and Burns has not yet decided, but it'll go to some scholarship fund mm -hmm. or part of a chair or something. And we've done that on a number of occasions where the books have been shared with the entity, especially oh, because because we've written. Well, I mean, like the, the, the um, Jenny and I wrote a history of the State Fair, yeah. and the State Fair uh, got a lot of those books, and and a lot of those they gave away, but a lot they sold at the State Fair. So, but I, but I don't. I, it's my part. It's my part of giving back to Oklahoma. Oklahoma has given me the most wonderful life, from birth, from the first time, uh, you know, and and I remember back to age three. And I just, uh, it's just, it's been a wonderful, wonderful uh, travel. Mm -hmm. And so I want to give back by preserving those stories. Anytime I can preserve one of these neat stories, I'm a very happy camper. I'm fascinated because you well, have written books on... Oh, I'm so on... windy. I'm so windy. <laughs> no, you're and, good. And, and see, I could tell you about all those 400 people. Well, that's, uh, that's the thing is you've done, oh you have done books, basically goodness. you do what I do. I mean, I do what you do basically, but I do it in a, for an hour, not in 150, 200, however many pages book. So that's why I'm fascinated with, you know, obviously we share a mutual passion for sharing people's stories and the state of Oklahoma. What I'm getting to is tell me about that time in 06 or 05 when you got the phone call that, you know, you, had you been working with the Hall of Fame before you were inducted? And how did you feel oh. then when you got that phone call oh, okay. to be say, hey, now, it's sure. now, now this is your turn. Now okay, somebody no, should no, be writing okay, books I'll about you. i about that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Before I was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2006, uh, I had probably, well, I had worked with the Heritage Association mm -hmm. and the Hall of Fame that became the Hall of Fame uh, since uh, probably 1987 or 88, 89, uh, first having... Uh, published several books, and then serving on the board forever. Yeah. I mean, I was on the board just forever. And uh, never, and, and was shocked out of my gourd, because uh, I didn't anticipate that. I was in my, I was in my mid-50s, but, yeah. uh, but then I get a call from Lee Allen Smith, my dear friend that I'm not sure, probably before that or after that, I had written his biography. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so um, uh, I was just saying, what? 
Me? I thought he was calling because I had nominated people for the Hall of Fame in the past and probably did that year. Mm -hmm. And I thought that maybe he was calling me to say, hey, you know, whoever you nominated got in. So I was so honored because it truly is the greatest honor an Oklahoman can receive. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and one of my heroes in life, I got to be inducted with him that night, posthumously Woody Guthrie. And so I sat by Woody Guthrie's sister. And, I mean, Woody Guthrie, of course, wrote This Land is, is Your Land, you know, that is one of the most sung songs in history. Yeah. But so I, so I was very honored. I, I was inducted with two really good friends of mine, Glenn Johnson, who at the time was the chancellor of higher education in Oklahoma, and uh, at the time the president of Oklahoma City University, Tom McDaniel. And so those were good friends of mine through civic projects, because I've been on the boards of a lot of nonprofits, okay, for a long time. And so I knew those guys, and, and I even wrote a biography of Glenn Johnson's daddy, who was an early congressman in Oklahoma. Yeah. And, and so, um, so I was so honored. And, and a guy that I'd never met before or since that's in my book of 400 uh, is a guy named Philip Kissler. Mm -hmm. uh, from Boston. Well, he's from Tulsa, but he basically uh, customized the MRI and w at Massachusetts General Hospital uh, to be a diagnostic tool in strokes and heart attacks. In fact, the stroke center at the Massachusetts General Hospital is named for him. So, and he was on the ground floor of developing the MRI as a diagnostic tool. And we've had so many people like that. Another guy from Tulsa did the first human gene transplant in history. You know, so many things, yeah. so many things uh, we have, uh, Oklahomans have done. No state can claim the, the aura of having excelled in almost every part of life. Yeah. Who introduced you that night at the Hall of Fame? I think Governor George and I. Yeah? Yeah. No, I, no that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I had, I had written George's biography on, uh, in 2000 mm -hmm. and I knew him before that. I mean, he had been lieutenant governor when I was secretary of commerce. Yeah. So I knew him. He was from McAllister. Uh, in fact, I'm having lunch with him on Monday. Great. George will be 94 in June. And still moving along. Still with it. He's still with it. We uh, we had a great conversation with him. He's still with it. He he told us some fantastic stories. Uh, what looking over your looking over all the things you've done in the last seventy eight years? What are the things that you haven't done yet that you're that are on your list? Like what you know. Because you don't you clearly don't strike me as someone who's stopping anytime oh, soon. No, no. no. You know? hey, as long as the good Lord gives me yeah. health enough to get to the office mm -hmm. and get up the stairs to my little area where I write yeah. and can wade through the boxes of things. Uh, I, the thing, what I want to do is just do another 30 or 40 books. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, I have a, on my computer, I have a list of 22 that need to start tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. What is your, what is the pro? I mean, you said you so you handwrite everything. You the pro. Tell me about the process of oh, you no, no, going no, out no. and interviewing I people. Type, you, I'm the fastest typist in midtown. Yeah. Okay, because in high school, again, that great education. Mm -hmm. Sybil Webb was this wonderful little lady yeah. who taught us typing in high school. Everybody hated it. Mm -hmm. Well, I loved it. I even typed my finals in law school. Okay, yeah. and and so and hadn't written so many books on 
uh, with Word. I use the Word program, but I started out on a on an ancient Franklin computer. But I can out type anybody uh, honestly in any office within a hundred yards of my. And there's a lot of lawyers and a lot of legal secretaries. But I, I type all the time. Yeah. Uh, and um, I just love doing that. I can sit there. The only time I really get fatigued is like on a Saturday and I'm really trying to finish something and I might do it for 12 hours and bathroom breaks are it. And maybe, you know, take a sandwich with me or something. Yeah. And I get what I call anointed. I mean, I am in the groove and I'm sitting there writing, writing, writing. And I, the time goes away from me. It's yeah. wonderful. A lot better than slicing a ball over in, you know, into a, to the water. Or lo- I was famous for losing balls when I did play a little golf. Yeah. But hey, you know, the worst that can happen to me on this yeah. is if I forget to save it and there's an electrical impulse that I have to rewrite two paragraphs, you know. <laughs> right. There's a great lesson there that, that you kind of found your passion at 39 years old. Yeah. Right? Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of people out there who, you know, people who I went to college with or people in their late 20s or whatever it is, that you know, at my age that... You know, even when you graduate, right? People ask you, ask you, well, what are you going to do? You know, yeah, or you, yeah. you know, as a young person, you kind of have that worry. You know, you might have feel that outside pressure from a parent or family. You know, what are you going to do with your life? You're like, I have no idea what I'm going to do in my life. You yeah, know, like, well, I, hey, I was, I was, I believe I was very successful as a lawyer, uh-huh. uh, and and did that. But when I spent the time with Lyle and with Vaughn and putting yeah. together his biography. Oh, that that became my passion. Yeah. Before that, it was probably church league softball. Because <laughs> whatever church I went to yeah. in my 20s and 30s, I was always the coach. Yeah. And loved to play church league softball. But then at about 39, I looked around one night and thought, I'm the oldest, I'm the oldest person here. Yeah. You know, I could still hit and I could I could pitch, but my legs were gone. You know, I couldn't run. So I hung it up that night. Yeah. Never played another game. <laughs> one of one of the things I found in the research is kind of your rule of thirds, right? Ru- oh, T- tell, yeah, yeah. tell us tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. That's a well, great story. well, what I like, I'm we have six wonderful kids and ten wonderful grandchildren. Yeah, and so I um, uh, I try to spend a third of my time practicing law, a third of my time writing books. Mm-hmm. Okay. A third of my time doing nonprofit work or doing charitable work, things like that, okay? And then a third of my time with the grandkids. Yeah. Now, you might notice that there are four thirds there, but my theory has always been life is a series of 15 minute segments. Yeah. Some of my kids think, well, I only have two hours. Uh, I can't do that. Well, if I got two extra hours, whew, I can do eight 15-minute projects. There's always a project, yeah. whether it is a housewife and mom at home. If there's 15 minutes, th- there's a 15-minute project. And in my office, there's always a 15-minute project. Yeah. You know? It's probably a hard question, but which book or books are you most proud of? Oh, you know, I can never figure that out. Or stories that, like, yeah, you know. Yeah. The people that you grew up thinking, oh, those people are great. Like, I hope I get to meet those people one day. And then yeah. you end up writing their biography. Well, one of my really early, really good selling books was um, uh, 
still popular. I'm giving a talk to the Oklahoma Pilots Association about the guy next month. Yeah, uh, is Wiley Post. Yeah, uh, Wiley was. A, a, it's an incredible rehab story. Wiley uh, had only one eye. Mm-hmm. He had had the other blown out in an industrial accident the first day on the job, and and then had only a sixth grade education, and had served some time in prison for robbery. So who would hire that kind of a guy to be a pilot? Yet within seven years after he is paroled, oh, I forgot to say, he had a depression problem so bad that the governor paroled him from prison. They let him out. The prison doctor recommended it. So with all those problems, seven years later, he becomes the world's greatest pilot because he is the first person in the world to fly around the world alone, 1933. And then... The following year, he discovers the jet stream over Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Then, of course, in 35, that's when he and Oklahoma's most famous person of all time, Will Rogers, died mm-hmm. uh, on the frozen ice of, of uh, Point Barrow, Alaska. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, that and another book that I think was needed is a book called Simple Truths that... Uh, is the I think the only book about the bombing investigation that uh, ever sold at the memorial mm-hmm. because I teamed up with two the two FBI agents who led the investigation, yeah. which at the time was the largest criminal investigation in history. Now the the January sixth attack on the Capitol, that investigation because they've gone over the country has probably surpassed that now. Mm-hmm. With the most man hours with the FBI and other agents, a fascinating story of how things came together yeah. within just hours of where the FBI learns about Tim McVeigh and they learn about Terry Nichols. Yeah. Um, uh, when I took on that project, I uh, was very open with the Department of Justice in saying, look. I'm a lawyer, and I'm going to make up my own mind. And they gave me, during the Terry Nichols trial, 30,000 copies of 30,000 exhibits that had been used in the, the federal trial in Denver. And so I took those, and hey, I can say without a glimmer of doubt that Tim McVeigh and Terry Nichols alone, those two guys, uh, former soldiers with short haircuts, uh, with no ties to any foreign organization, literally hated their country, and they did that atrocious deed. But but those two stand out, although it's my favorite book is usually the one that just got published, okay? And so that's my favorite book for a while. It's, I get the same, I mean, it's great to hear that, like, you still get the kind of fizz of writing a new book, right? Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. And, And interviews are wonderful. Yeah. Uh, because I've been doing a lot of interviews uh, uh, of Hal Smith, yeah. Oklahoma's most famous restaurateur mm-hmm. uh, of all time, kid who grew up in Ardmore. Yeah. And there's an interesting story that you'll read in the book about, for example, how he, how the names of some of his restaurants have, yeah. were. The Upper Crust is named that because his mother told him they were, didn't have a lot of money in Ardmore, and she said, now you need to go to school. So you can mingle with the upper crust out at at the country club. That is brutal. Well, when he wanted to make the upper crust more than just a pizza place yeah. with wine and other things, 
call it the upper crust. Oh, that's awesome. And then one of the funniest stories is is uh, Louis, a very successful all over the uh, in several states. Uh, Louis is actually named after OU coach Bob Stoops's dog, because of. Uh, uh, Coach Stoops and Hal went to Manhattan, Kansas, where Bob had been on the uh, uh, staff of mm-hmm. Coach Bill Snyder, and he just loved this this little bar and grill. Yeah. And and Hal didn't think that you could make make that, so he goes. They go up there, and he talks. Hal talks to the owner, and they come back, and they establish Louis. They needed a name, and 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 Coach had an old dog named Louis. So that's where Louis got his name. That's the great part about doing the interviews and finding out these stories and the backstories. And oh, I, I get the same oh, sense of feeling yeah. that from the doing a podcast, you hear stories you never would have heard before. Oh no! And the backstories are so wonderful. Yeah. And I want to preserve those. So, yeah. so it's always exciting when I do an interview of, of people who, uh, you know, who, who yeah. now many times I have a co-author. I don't in Hal Smith's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like in Burns Hargis, I, I have a co-author, Gary Shute, who uh, was director of communication mm-hmm. at OSU for a long time. So he knows the inside story of yeah. all those years at OSU. And so they do many of the interviews. Yeah. And then I have them transcribed. And then once those are in writing, I start tearing them apart and putting them in decades. And yeah. once there's a box full of material, I put it in decades. Gotcha. And then I start writing the story of the person's childhood yeah. and then just move on. It doesn't overwhelm me because I only have one folder on my desk. Right. And then um, sometimes I have to leave blanks in those first because uh, I didn't get the right spelling of, of a town or, you know, I leave blanks. Yeah. Uh, but then you just do it chronologically. If you're doing a subject book like A History of the State Fair, uh, Jenny and I divided up everything by, you know, early years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, toward the end, food. I wanted a chapter on food because that's my favorite part of the, of the fair. Yeah. <laughs> Do you talk about, you mentioned interviews. Do you send everybody the same set of questions just to oh, grab Oh, no, no, like, I do the interviews uh, many times in person. Okay. Or I do a lot of them on phone anymore, especially sure. out-of-state yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just record the conversation. No, no, no. It's just, for example, in a Hal Smith interview, which is my current project, yeah. um, I uh, will call, for example, I got to interview uh, the guy uh, who founded Outback because he and Hal then built them all over this part of the country. Mm-hmm. Well, he's retired in Florida and he had never been to Australia. He just came up with the idea. He has his own golf course in Florida. I have a friend who's played it and he said that you can literally have anything, you can have something that's meat on every single tee box. Oh, oh no, I write. Yeah, so I catch him on there and he, he's yeah. 75 years old. Yeah. But I, and I, I know a little about him because Hal has mentioned him and I knew he had founded Outback. Mm-hmm. And so, but usually my first deal, that my first question uh, is, okay, tell me how you, what's your full name? Spell that for me, okay? Yeah. And then I will say like, I'll say, hey, when's the first time you ever met Hal Smith? Well, that starts a 30-minute conversation. Gotcha. Well, we both worked for Steak and Ale. And so, and then as he's saying, as he's saying things, then that prompts other questions. Yeah. Well, now, wh- what year was that, you know? And, and was Norm Brinker the head of Steak and Ale at the time? I mean, it opens, it's like, a, and I think my legal training has helped me there because I'm searching for information. Mm-hmm. And as he's talking, I'm interrupting with questions. And so I get all that information by the end of the 30 minutes. Yeah. 
I'm gonna have to have a lot more conversations with you because I want, I got so much to learn. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I've done we're 400 and something episodes into the podcast, but still, like, there's always learning and there's always intricacies of conversation. Oh, yeah, just ways yeah. to keep it going. But and, I, and I'm still learning. Yeah, I, I love co-authors. Uh, uh, we have a biography coming out of a federal judge who, another federal judge, was my co-author. Yeah. Well, what a great co-author because he would yeah. correct whole paragraphs saying, you know, let's say it a different way. I love that because he had been this judge's friend for 50 years. And, and so I, so I, so I never, I'm never offended by somebody saying, you know, why, why not do it this way? And Jenny Campbell, I'm telling you, is the world's best editor. Now I bet she's done 70, 60 or 70 books. Yeah. Uh, so I've learned from her, her little idiosyncrasies in editing. Mm-hmm. You can't say U.S. Senator, you got to say United States Senator, okay? I know how she uses dashes. Yeah. And so I try to make it as clean as I can before she ever edits it, because I know her rules, okay? <laughs> You, you you've had that you've had that return edit with all the red marks over it as I have as oh, well. <laughs> oh no, yeah, but hey, no, no. that's no problem. No, I I, I, totally I love agree to get with you. those, and I'll stay up late that night of making yeah. all the corrections, yeah. and then send it back to her, and then it is ready for design. Yeah, you know, yeah. it is ready to go. Well, I want to I want to thank you for coming in and sharing some stories. Cause hey, oh, it's my pleasure. These are brilliant. Um, you know, you're very inspiring. The like I said. Road to 200. We're on the way to 200 bucks. That's um, right. But I'm I, gonna. If Nora Roberts slows down, <laughs> I'm gonna try to to outrun her. Yeah. Well, I I don't know this, but what I don't know what like what does one book actually classify as? Does it have to be certain many pages? Well, I mean, there is well, ways no, there, to get there, around. There really you is within there. the industry. It's got to be more than forty pages for okay. it to be a book. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a pamphlet. Gotcha. I don't know where I got that information from, <laughs> but I've always quoted that. Right. <laughs> Just good for context for people listening. <laughs> but, uh, Miss Big, thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Hey, great, um, Mike. Great stories. Uh, you know, just so many, so many things in there that people listening can take. Um, you know, you're 78 years old. You're still kicking. You're not going anywhere anytime soon. Nope. You're still passionate. That's right. Find your passion, no matter how long it takes you to find it. You know, thank you. Once anybody you driving on 13th Street in Oklahoma City will see my light. Yeah. Uh, burning very early in the morning. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming in. Um, go and enjoy your grandson's birthday party. Happy right. 12th birthday. <laughs> and uh, for everyone listening, we'll catch you next episode. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is presented by the Oklahoma Hall of Fame, telling Oklahoma stories through its people since 1927. Follow them online at oklahomahof.com and definitely on Instagram at oklahomahof. Thank you for listening. We are inspired by those around us and hope that you are too. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review so we can keep telling your stories. For more great Oklahoma content, follow This Is Oklahoma on Facebook and Instagram.